0: So, the title of this episode is The World's Most Technologically Sophisticated Genocide is Happening in Xinjiang. It's named after a foreign policy piece written by the two guests today, Rehan Assad and Yona Diamond. In addition to both being lawyers, Rehan is also the sister of Akbar Assad, who was forcibly disappeared by the Chinese Communist Party in 2016 in Xinjiang. And she's the president of the American Turkic International Lawyers Association. As for Yona Diamond, He is legal counsel at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, named after the Swedish diplomat who saved tens of thousands of Jews in Nazi-occupied Hungary. Uh, This is a very difficult conversation, as you might imagine, so please be mindful of that when you're listening to it. There is quite a lot of mention of the tactics being used by the Chinese government against the Uyghur population and other minorities in China. And as a quick side note, this episode was actually recorded before the August 4th explosion in Lebanon and i hadn't released it before due to the fact that i didn't want to do anything else uh, in august so yeah i hope you find this conversation instructive and i hope it moves you to take some action as well on your side so as usual you can follow the podcast on twitter at fire these times if you like what i do please consider supporting this project with only one dollar a month on patreon on buymeacoffee.com and you can also do so directly on paypal if you prefer patreon is for monthly paypal is for one-offs and Buy Me Coffee has both options And if you cannot donate, you can still help by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.
1: Hi, Joey. Good to be with you. Um, So my name is Ray Asad, and I am Oydir attorney based in Washington, D.C. Um, I've been working as an attorney for several years, and my main practice um, is anti-corruption and international investigation. Uh and a bit of dispute resolution Um, but I also like I'm very much interested in entrepreneurship and largely in part um, my brother inspired my past entrepreneurship and I founded and currently serving as the president of the American Turkic Bar Association which is Uh catered to the needs of American Turkic lawyers Uh, were relatively new, uh, but uh, still like a growing institution. Yeah, and um, I got involved in the Uyghur human rights crisis, unfortunately, because this, dramatically, I am affected by it. Um, Mm -hmm. Regardless, I grew up in a very um, modern Uyghur family that even the government held as like a model citizens or a model family. Especially my brother, who has um, this, you know, great platform that wow. has been perceived as a positive bridge between ethnic minorities and the Xinjiang local government, and often, you know, held by the government through their own state media, and even like used his platform. Um, to be able to um, respond to the citizens' concerns on you know, different issues. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, he was also detained during this Uyghur human rights crisis when the government started building the infamous internment camps or concentration camps for the Uyghur community as a whole. Mm -hmm. so um yeah it's it's a very tragedy and for me i always struggle between being an attorney and so you know who goes to court and defend others to now like you know being advocate for my brother and trying to free him from these Mm -hmm. um detention camps
0: yeah we'll definitely get into uh, your brother specifically and the wider situation uh yona would you mind introducing yourself briefly as well
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us, Joey. Um, I'm Jonah Diamond. I work at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights uh, as an international human rights lawyer, and I'm the legal counsel at the center. We actually met Rehan through another international human rights lawyer, and what we do at the Wallenberg Center, named after the Swedish diplomat who saved tens of thousands of Jews during the Holocaust Mm -hmm. uh, by issuing... Uh, you know, false papers and setting up safe houses, so our center is sort of informed by his legacy that the power of uh, one person with the compassion to care and the courage to act can transform history and so we represent um, sort of modern-day Mandela's and political prisoners around the world who represent the struggle for human rights in their own countries. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when we were introduced to Rehan, we took on her brother's case uh, as emblematic of the persecution of the Uyghurs. um, And we'll get into that more. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Thank you both for having this conversation. If we can start with like an overview of what we're talking about, I think most people probably know that something is happening and they may have seen some of the headlines, but you know, depending on how much they've read, they may not know the extent and even like sophistication of the problem that we're talking about. So before going into the the argument, the main argument of the foreign policy piece that you two wrote that, uh, for calling this a genocide, can we start with a general timeline? Like how did it start, the scale of it maybe? And if we can also touch a bit on what exactly is the CCP, like the Chinese Communist Party's motive and public rationale anyway for doing this?
1: Yeah. Um- I start by saying that 2020, this year marks four years into the Uyghur human rights crisis. And now we're calling it a crippling genocide. And there has been a lot of report that since as early as 2016, over a million um, Turkic Uyghurs are detained in these camps or prisons and even forced labor factories. So adding Uh the slavery component to it. so <clears throat> China watchers or journalists and investigators found overwhelming evidence through the government's own official documents, political speeches, um, that deta- det- detainees who are held in these camps are often subject to military-style discipline, transformation, soft transformation, as they call and, and forced com- confessions.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, <clears throat> the government tried to use a soft spoken language, like a re-education camps to define what it is doing to the Uyghur people as a whole. But mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, it has a bit of historical resonance to it, because this happened in during the Cultural Revolution, when the entire China was subject to some sort of re-education. But what we're seeing now is that the government single-handedly um, singling out an entire ethnic group, not just yeah. Uyghurs, but Kazakh, Kyrgyz, uh, Tajik, like, you know, all sorts, all target groups. Um, but if we look at my brother's case as an example, Mm-hmm. Somebody who is incredibly successful, massively successful, and as seen as a positive force by the government through their own words, this re-education camps proves it's nothing but a euphemism for the physical and mental destruction of the Uyghur people. And perhaps mm-hmm. Yona I can add more to to his understanding.
2: Yeah, sure. I think it's important. It's hard to conceptualize this genocide, but it's important to, as Rehan often refers to it, as a multi-pronged approach to destroying the Uyghur people or future generations. And it's important to note that each demographic, uh, whether it's men within, you know, between the ages of 20 and 50 who are sent to these camps, the majority in these camps are. The vast majority are men, right? But mm. the women have been subjected to an increasing systematic program of forced sterilization. And so we have an increase in either women who are widowed or those who have been sterilized or subjected to other you know, other kinds of forms of birth prevention. And then children, up to half a million now, have been uh, kidnapped, essentially, and put in state-run facilities where some have even committed suicide and so we have a multi-pronged approach at erasing the future generation and it's and it's it's very disturbing because it's a very slow process but it's also very sophisticated like you noted joey where Mm -hmm. there's this incredible mass surveillance the world's largest mass surveillance intrusive program cameras on every block facial recognition. And, you know, I actually just recently watched testimony, my my grandmother and my grandparents survived the Holocaust. And I just recently watched my grandmother's testimony for the first time, actually. And, you know, it's so it's so hard to conceptualize that that entire peoples could be targeted. um, Because she was talking about how she had to live under catholic papers during in budapest during the holocaust Mm -hmm. but she would see daily you know jews being shot behind you know behind where she worked and just in the streets you know and so um we see it in movies and whatever we think like you know this this is just surreal right but um and to have a program where you're with technology it makes it almost even scarier Mm -hmm. there are many differences obviously i mean the scale of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. hard to compare. But what, what we do see that is a parallel is the targeted of entire ethnic groups uh, simply for who they are. And I think Rehan's brother is a, you know, paradigmatic example because he's someone that the Chinese government respects and has even praised. And yet he is still um, in this disappeared state.
0: Yeah. And the piece uh, you mentioned that Rehan's brother, Ekbarasat, um I think they call him like a bridge builder, a positive force, uh, as Rehan just mentioned. And like this is an important detail. And I thank you for mentioning it because the CCP's supposed rationale. And of course, I'm using rationale in quotation here is that they are fighting religious extremism. Now, this is something that's very common, in, uh, especially since 9-11, uh, the this, this so-called war on terror. is really used to justify quite a lot of things. Myself, um, I, I spend a lot of time involved in Syria- Syria-related activism, and this is obviously what the, the Syrian regime uses to describe uh, pretty much everyone. Um, can we, uh, Rehan? Would you mind talking a bit more about your brother? Uh, who, who is he? When's the last time you've heard of him? Uh, and like, just w- what's happening to him, as far as you know?
1: Yeah. So my brother, you know, as I said, he's a tech entrepreneur and he's so successful. But at the same time, he has a massive heart. Um, you know, he's a philanthropist. He, um, due to personal reason because of, you know, a cousin that he feels very close to um, was impaired um, and he couldn't hear, you know, at the age of, since the age of four. Mm -hmm. So he took this call so personally. So he ended up, you know, making, um, helping kids with disabilities as like a signature campaign. So he built like a lot of like these uh, charitable initiatives. Um, And as a result, Um, you know, the government also, like, cooperated with him on these, like, uh, initiatives and always praised him um, to the point that, um, you know, his reputation um, started to expand, not just within China, but also, like, internationally. And uh, former um, U.S. Ambassador China, Max Barcus, in 2014 when he was visiting Urumqi, uh, the city I'm from, um, Mm -hmm. he ended up meeting successful and prominent entrepreneurs and business leaders. And he also met with my brother. And and he he met a bunch of Uyghur um, business leaders, but he nominated my brother as an international leader to the U.S. State Department's premier program called International Business Leadership Program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the notable alumni community include um, the former prime minister of the U.K., Margaret Thatcher, current UN secretary general Antonio Guterres and the New Zealand's beloved prime minister Jacinda Ardern. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came to this program representing China as a part of a delegation. Um, he's part of like a nine group members and you know he impressed everybody during his trip uh, and his host can attach to that he even they, they even wrote letters um, talking about the memories of, of hosting him but um so the program ran about a month after returning from this program immediately he was detained and right after so he will he return in uh, mid-march oh, late march and 26 2016, 2016 and okay. march he mid-march yeah so after he returned, and he um, organized, and I think this is a program that he organized even while he was in the United States. And he was keeping it like a, a sort of a secret thing from me to just like surprise, delightfully surprise me. So together with the the regional sports bureau, he organized international boxing tournament, inviting boxers from Central Asian countries and Mal- Malaysia and together with the Chinese team uh, a friendship um, boxing tournament if you will and it was incredibly successful so you have like a you know Chinese flags and the audience were like a mix of ethnic minorities and the Chinese even like you see like pictures of police officers, and it was incredibly successful program that even Chinese government CCTV and this is like a late March but early um, April in fact April 7th was the day 2016 he was tamed and that was a period that I'm still like a student at Harvard Law just trying to finish up my exams and hope, hoping to see my brother like a two month's time at my graduation and suddenly my entire family canceled their trip to the U.S. And they told me like they couldn't make it, and I just couldn't understand how like a uh, my entire family like refused to come to my graduation when I'm the first Uyghur u- to graduate from Harvard. And mm-hmm. you know, while I was processing, trying to understand why would they do this to me, um, it, it turns out the reason was because my brother was detained, and they couldn't just you know like leave and come to attend my graduation. And, you know, it's been four years and I'm still struggling trying to find out if he's alive, like, where is he held, like, um, is he in Urumqi, like, or is he being relocated, like, other prisoners? Uh, And all this time, I thought he's, like, in this one of those uh, famous internment camps until this year, after I started meeting with State Department and until um, late December last year, I met with members of Congress and they wrote a letter to the Chinese government asking my brother's whereabouts. That's when I learned that he's actually uh, imprisoned. Um, and now, like, facing a 15-year um, imprisonment for trumped-up charges inciting ethnic hatred. it been a system designed to oppress people like oh, my brother. Mm. The entire the government accuses him inciting ethnic hatred.
0: Um, so as as I mentioned, like I do, I spend quite a lot of time on um, Syria-related activism, and recently I had uh, Wafa Mustafa, who is a Berlin-based uh, Syrian activist whose father was forcibly disappeared in Syria. And so, like I bring this up because I suppose on one level it no longer fully surprises me that governments are capable of horrors, but one thing that we mentioned um, before, and maybe we can get into it a bit more, is the 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 bureaucratic aspect of it, or maybe like the sophistication, the technological aspect mm-hmm. of of um, the methods used by the Chinese government. we we, are, we of course are seeing widespread torture um, you mentioned in your in your piece, electrocution, rape, waterboarding, stress positions. You mentioned the force, the force, uh, sorry, force sterilization campaigns against Uyghur women, especially uh, the multiple reports of murders and these so-called re-education camps, which many have called concentration camps. But like besides that, which is obviously horrific in its in in its own ways, we're also seeing an extremely sophisticated uh, bureaucratic response by the CCP that actually. Um, defies or maybe maybe that's not the correct term i don't know but it, it actually makes it even more difficult to to comprehend the scale of it so can we talk a bit about the um, more like intricate bureaucratic stuff the the advanced online censorship the monitoring the tracking all of that and maybe even your experience with it if you've had any or maybe people that you know that have had uh, besides your brother as well yeah
3: like,
1: the the very fact that um you know, it's been four years that we don't even know, like, where my brother is, should be mm. quite telling. Yeah. And, you know, I many governments have their own track record of human rights violations, but often, like, at least you would have some sort of access to the mm. family member who is detained. But in our case, and, you know, I can speak for um, the members of the Uyghur community. You can't even talk to your detained family. You don't know if they're alive. Mm -hmm. So not only the person who is detained, your entire family members are suffering. Suffering from not knowing if they are alive. You know, are they subject to torture, waterboarding, electrocution? All these are common patterns of uh, brutal treatments that Uyghur detainees endure in these um, internment camps. Mm -hmm. but now i'm in the united states like as a sister of course i care about my brother every day i think about him it's even like you know breaks my heart to talk to you about him Mm -hmm. as a sister like trying to to be his advocate rather than just a lawyer trying to save the world i can't even talk to my family about him every time like if i want to like you know i gone to media like what happened i want to know if there's any response from the government at least like he's alive they can't even talk to me about about this because our conversation is obviously heavily mounted Mm -hmm. and if they even dare to tell me something perhaps they could be sent to these internment camps and i think that is the terror and i'm using this word very carefully that the chinese government installed in all of us.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: my brother, if we're gonna call it my brother as a as a victim, then me and my family members are survivors. But
3: mm-hmm.
1: even we are subject to this like state terror to the extent that I cannot even describe the pain of pretending and talking to my family as if life is normal. Like we can't even address the existence or non existent of my brother. I mean, that's how intrusive the entire surveillance system is like the communications between me as a sister who lives in the United States and my family members back home Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and a lot like I cannot imagine how much my family members activities in Xinjiang in Urumqi are monitored Mm -hmm. and I I always think like you know um, when you use a personal story, it's a far more powerful way to explain the pervasiveness of surveillance. Um, but yeah, so, you know, otherwise, like what, we, what we see is like in Urumqi, like, you know, everywhere you go, like, you know, people have to either like, you know, scan their identification cards, which already flags you. Like, I'm sure like my parents and are in, in the system, so, you know, the minute they give hunt in their identification card when they pass through any sort of security, and there are a lot in Urumqi, you know, they would be already flagged and also subject to all sorts of harassment that they can never discuss with me. So, and that's the thing, and I think that that's what makes this genocide so uniquely dangerous because of its technological sophistication. And it also allows China to destroy and conceal the scale of atrocities from the global attention.
2: And it can be... Yeah, sorry, Yana. Sorry, I just wanted to add um, the 15-year sentence that Rehan cited um and correct me if there's been an update rehan but that was basically through word of mouth so there's no we haven't seen any court documents to that effect and so essentially you know her and her family are still you know subjected to this the pain and suffering of not knowing Um, yeah um i wanted to
0: add uh to what rehan was saying as well like part of of what's scary about the um, The um, CCP's method is its global implications as well, in addition to everything we're talking about, because in the same way as uh, some governments, and again, I can focus on Syria, uh, they, they would test out certain weapons on civilian populations, for example, the Russians have done this and the Syrians have done this. Uh, these are technologies that can then be just sold to other uh, governments in other countries that want to replicate it. And China will be able to basically say, well, this is how successful we have been. So now this is a product that uh, can be sold on, on that market, so to speak. You, in, in your piece, um, you're both lawyers. And in your piece, you make the argument that what the CCP is doing is uh, a genocide can you walk us through the legal arguments? I'm not a lawyer. I only have a um, kind of like a basic understanding of international law. I, can, I know the Geneva Conventions when it comes to uh, war-related situations, of course, and, you know, I know the basics. But can you walk us through the legal arguments of the term genocide and why does calling this genocide uh, actually matter in international law?
2: Uh, sure. I, I mean, Rayhan, if you want uh, either one.
1: Yeah. Uh, like I, I talked earlier, why didn't you go first? And I'll um, I'll add to that.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So just really quickly, I mean, under the Genocide Convention, which is the universal definition, at least right now under international law, it's you know certain acts against members of a group with the intent to destroy that group in whole or in part. And the acts include killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting conditions to bring about the group's physical destruction, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And so if you go through, it's 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 not so complicated when you look at and it doesn't have to be all of these factors to constitute genocide. It's any one so Mm -hmm. even just taking the imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group um, with the intent to destroy that group in whole or in part um, we see very clearly that uh, there is a uh, you know an intent within the policy and the directives of the chinese communist party the highest levels um, orders to repeated orders to break their origins their roots their connections um, to round up everyone who should be rounded up, to implement the birth prevention program. Um, And the numbers are are pretty horrifying too recently, you know, um, as you see in the article, um, you know, population growth rates in the Uyghur heartland plummeted by 84% between 2015 and 2018. Um, uh, And then uh, sterilization rates are skyrocketing in Xinjiang while plunging through the rest of China. In one, in a major prefecture, Kashgar, only 3% of married women of childbearing age gave birth in 2019. Um, and so, and now we see that the government is trying to destroy some of this evidence. I mean, by taking down either the websites or not, not reporting birth rate information, or even in Houston with the, you know, burning of documents, um, it's not clear what that's about, but, uh. I imagine it's, and, and you know, detainees are being transferred to different camps. It's unclear if prior camps or evidence is being destroyed. It's a very systematic um, campaign. And, um, and like I said before, with the uh, detaining of the men uh, who are of child uh, rearing or, you know, uh, marriage age and by uh, enforcing the forced sterilization of women of childbearing age and by um forcibly removing the children which is you know um the the uh, fifth act under the genocide convention Mm -hmm. Uh, all of this uh is creating this multi pronged uh, conditions uh intended to destroy the group either in whole or in part um and uh, i'll let Rehan if you want to add anything
1: yeah and you know as you stated, we're both voiced, and um, you know, genocide, g word carries huge weight, so we mm-hmm. don't like to use it lightly. You know, as we discuss this issue, as we're writing this paper, uh, as Yona said, like, uh, there has been debate, like, you know, that CCP's rationale or motive behind this is more of assimilation. I think it's way beyond assimilation. Assimilation did happen um, in, in the um, 90s or early 2000s where there was a, a emphasis on bilingual education, like either to a bilingual school. But this is like a whole different scale. And when we debate whether like this meets a definition of genocide or not, Mm-hmm. which obviously are, as we clearly laid out in this article, mm-hmm. I think we would be trivializing the pain of millions of people who are in these camps. And the argument that this is somewhat limited to assimilation falls, um on its merits very plainly. Because if you look at my brother as an example, mm-hmm. he's highly educated in. Individual. He speaks Chinese very fluently. Like, this is nothing about assimilation. He's well integrated into the Chinese society. And look at all these intellectual scholars that are detained in these camps. They were the pillars of the Uyghur society. They were the ones who are educating the next generation of Uyghur kids. They are way beyond uh, well integrated Chinese society. So I think they would be doing immense disservice to human suffering, if we're going to make the argument that, you know, the Chinese government's rationale is to assimilate. It is to destroy um, the entire uh, Uyghur people, through, you know, as I have emphasized in in many articles, through this, like, a multi-pronged approach from all different angles, with Uyghur men being detained, women sterilized and even like being forced into marriage with men of not their liking and Uyghur children are being separated from their family. Yeah, the Chinese government is perfectly laying for genocide and it's happening on our watch and I don't know how many stories the individual Uyghurs have to share with this the world so mm. bravely. And the world can finally take action and say, this is enough.
0: And, the, and this also includes uh, the Chinese government sending uh, Han people into weaker homes, as far as I understand. And can you talk a bit about this and what are they trying to do with uh, this move? And this is not new, of course. I think the first time I've heard about it was like two years ago, but I, I may be wrong on the timeline. So please feel free to correct me on that as well.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and you know they to um, they call this as um, becoming family initiative.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's nothing but becoming. It's unbecoming. You know, you can't force people to love each other and become family. A relationship of love often happens organically. Mm-hmm. But what it what they are doing is that, you know, every Uyghur, especially when These women whose husbands are detained in these camps are subject to the government's surveillance through these civilians. So they are in their own beds, monitored by these hands. So imagine a scenario where your thoughts are monitored by somebody. You know, the law is often carried out by enforcement agencies or like police departments, but these civilians get to decide whether these women should be sent to these re-education camps after they spend a year or two with this family. Mm. I cannot imagine the horror of somebody living in my own home and monitor my every move and decide whether I should be sent to a camp or not. And how scary is that, you know? Like somebody just like, you know, decide just grab you in your own home.
2: And this also, yeah, this allows for state-sanctioned sexual violence and rape, you know? I mean, watchers are being, and officials are being placed in Uyghur homes, in their beds. I mean, this is truly shocking. Uh, And yeah.
0: Uh, part of what I was trying to do, of course, in just preparing for this episode is reading up on some of the reports that have been released, of course, in the past year. Uh, my understanding, as I said, uh, or my involvement um, when it comes to this is uh, still fairly limited. I'm trying to get a bit more involved. And in the end, before finishing the conversation later on, I will ask you to if you can talk a bit about how people can get involved if they want. But uh, so one of the reports that I, I was reading, and I have it in front of me, is the so-called Xinjiang Papers by the New York Times, and um, you you linked it as well in in your foreign policy piece. And for those who don't know, it's uh, over 400 pages of internal uh, government documents that were leaked, um, and some of this uh, stuff are uh, well. I will link all of this in the associated blog post on the website as well, but. Can you talk a bit about um, your reaction when you actually read the report? And for those who don't know, um, what did it show? Um, in addition to everything that we've already talked about, I guess, um, about just the resolve that the government, the CCP and Xi Jinping, even personally, like some of these are his uh, like internal speeches and uh, calling for things like, um, I just, I'm just i just randomly quoting in front of me, like uh, using the organs of dictatorship. These are his words. And showing absolutely no mercy, and like really, really, just such a harsh, harsh language that just shows the extent, the dedication. I guess we might uh, we might say of the CCP to really, really crack down, uh, murder, destroy, to levels that are very rarely seen in 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 today's uh, like in twenty twenty.
1: And, and you're absolutely right. And the tone was set. Yeah. At the very top. The statements like absolutely no mercy. So when yeah. you are a commander-in-chief and using these words, of course, you know, your um your followers are going to implement those policies because you allowed so. In fact, you even encourage it. And in addition to these statements, one was in particular so troubling is um again Garner's own official documents, break the lineage. Break their roots, break their connections, and break their origins. Mm-hmm. And if these words are not telling, I don't know what it is to convey the government's motive behind destroying the Uyghur people as a whole. So when I, when I hear these statements, I'm like, I hey, I, you know, my brother is there for a reason to break him both mentally and physically
3: Mm.
1: and it's not just about for him to forgetting his Uyghur identity because we are we grew up in a very well integrated society I think um, you know I speak Chinese very beautifully and you know I I also love Chinese culture so Mm. there was never this rejection of Chinese culture in some ways like I have friends within the Chinese culture, um, long-term friendships, and neighbors that we grew up with. So, uh, you know, I think with these languages, what is incredibly telling is the Chinese government truly um, intended to physically and mentally break the Uyghur people so that they can ultimately achieve this goal of destroying the people as a whole. And, you know, Yona mentioned about these like forced programs. And if you look at the data, um, you know, the statistic obviously show, as Yona mentioned, um, it is having the desired effect. You know, mm-hmm. U- U- Uyghur's birth rates are plummeting while the rest of China um, is skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's so, it's, so painful for, um, you know, Uyghur person to hear these things and just especially like, you know, the diaspora community because we have no way of knowing what's happening over there and we get to see this through the plain words of the, the government and, mm. and I, I'm glad that um, there were some um, brave uh, government officials within the the party's um, own that I actually thought that these are incredibly despicable crime that the Chinese government committing and um, at least what they can do to expose it. And
0: what has been like, what has the the CCP's response been to the, either those uh, leaks, which I believe were in November 2019, or uh, the multiple reports obviously that have been coming out, the activists that have managed to leave or not even like they, they are forced to become activists, unfortunately. Um, just the people who managed to to uh, go elsewhere, like leave China and uh, leave Xinjiang, and managed to get some uh, coats out, or managed to even send sure. some photos or uh, stories of what happened to them personally or to their um, uh, their loved ones. Uh, what has the the government's um, response been on the international scene? Let's say, because I know that there's, uh, I'm I'm fairly interested in. Uh, like disinformation campaign, and obviously in the case of Syria, it's it's largely the the Russian government doing it. As far as I can uh, as far as I understand it, the CCP has also kind of ramped up its efforts to do this. From I've seen some campaigns in India, I've seen some in the US. Uh, they seem to be uh, relatively unsophisticated compared to the other things, but that might just be an impression uh, compared to the. Um, the Russian tactics, which is uh, more advanced, I would say, in terms of disinformation. Um, so yeah, how has the the CCP tried to? Um, I don't know how to how to ask the question. Like, how has it tried to ta- to mask what it's doing? How has it tried to uh, respond to the international condemnations? Even though, and maybe you can talk a bit about this as well. Like, the international condemnations have been relatively muted uh, in the Arab w- sorry in the Muslim world. Um, there isn't much coming out of uh, Muslim leaders uh, on this, and there's actually actual complicity sometimes. So, uh, how would you describe the international uh, dimension of it, either from the CCP's own uh, responses, or you know, maybe other governments who, you know, have may- maybe have s- uh, done some declarations here and there,
2: but nothing more than that. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, Rehan was just on a panel on disinformation on this very topic. So I'll I'll let Rehan start with this.
1: The Chinese government um, has deployed this like a multi pronged approach um, to uh, discredit the survivors of its horrific crimes.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, it's using propaganda and just information campaign to either attack this individual activist or journalists and even institutions that are reporting on this issue. So initially it started with silence and later it's outright denial. But now I see a new trend, which is a pivoting to offense.
3: Yeah.
1: And using the family members appear on state propaganda, um, TV or shows, to portray this happy Muslim uh, and happy Uyghur's face um, to discredit them. But um, I mean, and it's not even well executed. I mean, especially there was one, I find it incredibly insulting to the world's intelligence by um, portraying this uh, young, week boy um guy like in his early 20s falling in love with this han uh girl in inland china and Mm -hmm. on their first day like he would just you know start to uh face time his mom telling like you know how beautiful this relationship is and, and so forth like nowhere like you know it not even Xinjiang, like even like here in in, in any parts of the world, the young people can afford to uh, live in a, a very fancy apartment. It's, you know, we're all like in, in debt, like student debt. Uh, and, and that's what I mean, but it's not even well executed because it obviously is like a government-paid apartment. This guy just like gets up in a fancy apartment in the morning and start to shave and get just ready to, to date this girl. And these yeah. are just like a... a examples of using social media um, to its own advantage to use this aggressive disinformation campaign to portray a whole different image. Uh, But at the same time, I think um, in terms of the Muslim world, I think they're using this like that entrapment policy uh, because um, the ones that can the Chinese government are often invested in democracies who represent two sides of the world economy. But the rest of the world, like, you know, economically, they're very much dependent on China, mm. especially using this, like, a Belt and Road initiative, what the Chinese government is using to buy their conscience. And they, not only they were, they remained as bystander countries to this mass atrocities, they even ended up, supporting the Chinese government, um, you know, on on paper to even like endorse in this um, uh, letter um, right after the 22 Western democracies condemn the Chinese government. So it's truly like a multi-pronged approach that shows the sophistication of the Chinese government in understanding the modern social media platform and the disinformation and propaganda campaign. Yeah.
2: And, this and perhaps
1: is, you and I can add more.
2: Yeah, this is, I think this is so important and so dangerous because I always ask myself, you know, how was the world indifferent during the Holocaust? It makes no sense. You know, uh, countries stood as bystanders, appeasing. And, you know, again, um, there are differences, but um, we, now I, now I, it's almost scarier today um, for this generation. Uh, with social media, TikTok, which has other problematic aspects, mm-hmm. uh, and and those, and the Chinese government is taking advantage of these platforms, and they know that we get so easily distracted nowadays. So if there's a video of someone dancing online, that's more interesting to your average citizen, unfortunately, than what's happening in the camps, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's very scary in that sense, um, and. China's ambassador to the UK was actually on BBC uh, this month and um, it it was actually quite the botched interview, if if you want to link it as well, like, you know, he was fumbling for it. He he was shown footage of the Uyghurs blindfolded, shackled, um, you know, and shaven, being led onto trains. And he did not even deny the veracity or the authenticity of the video. Um, he just, you know, kind of fumbled with his words and said it was a, a, you know, a standard prison transfer. Um, and then went on to say how, how happy Jin Yang is and people who live there. Are. And so it's not a very, you know, it's, it's not so sophisticated when it comes to these sort of statements, but it is when it comes to places like the UN and the human rights council, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is also very scary because. China has been able to use its political and economic influence. Uh, You know, in July of last year, there was a letter from 37 ambassadors, uh, you know, including Saudi Arabia, Russia, Pakistan, that positively evaluated the human rights developments in Xinjiang and praised China's, quote unquote, counterterrorism and de-radicalization success Mm -hmm. and and justifying, justifying the camps. (laughs) Okay, this is 37 countries in July. And then... In October of last year, a joint statement at the General Assembly's third committee uh, on behalf of 23 countries condemned the persecution. That's only 23 countries. I mean, that's not so many. And and then a group of more than 50 countries supporting China sought to condemn China's remarkable, sorry, so, not condemn, commend, <laughs> praise China's remarkable achievements in the field of human rights. You know, of course, that includes countries with horrendous human rights records, like Russia and, and Egypt, and et cetera. But um, so this disinformation campaign and influence is being exercised in, you know, multilateral institutions, and it's 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 successful, um, you know. And so that's why it's very scary, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: And I I, I want to add this. Um, mm-hmm. So another thing the Chinese government uh, was quite successful is that um, they handpicked certain country officials that would come out in terms of evaluation in their favor and then allowed them to visit these um, re-education camps selectively. And even like those camps that that are um, in the Chinese government's eyes, like, you know, go to pass these examination or in their show reviews are not glamorous at all you know there, there was a video of um, these detained Chinese singing like if you're happy say yes I mean what is that but um again they handpicked those countries that would be in their favor I mean that just goes to show like how much of China's influence penetrated and all over the world, either through buying uh, 20% media in Kenya, but at the same time, like um, I'm so glad that you and I give the example of the Chinese ambassador to the UK, um, this interview in particular, because um, I think we we need to ask those questions um, from ourselves. With the level of sophistication in, in, in technology um, modern technology that China has achieved at this moment, if there's still like a video footage of men blindfolded and shackled being led on these trains, how many things we're not seeing?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because they can cover up so much. We still found these videos. How many horrific treatments these are detainees are experiencing every day and every second that the world is not seeing. And these are the kind of questions that we have to ask ourselves how to act, because um, I think the damages are done and it would, you know, it would remain through generations. And I think we don't have the luxury of time to still raise awareness, but to act.
0: Yeah. And on, on that note, actually, for, if listeners who are listening uh, to this, if they want to get involved, are there like Uyghur groups, for example, the groups that they can get in touch with? Is there any campaign, upcoming campaign that might be useful for them to know? Um, and maybe like more generally, um, where, can, where can they find uh, more information other than all of the links that we just mentioned, which I will link in the associated blog post? Uh, which is quite a lot already, of course, but uh, yeah, okay. just as general uh, recommendations for those who are listening, uh, where can they go uh, if they want to be more involved?
1: So I want to mention too, and um, because you talked about Syria, so I came across yesterday mm-hmm. um, a website called Syrian Archive, I believe, um, yes. where like they documented um, through like a different category what has happened in Syria. And I thought it was really good. And I think we do need to document the genocide and, you know, because maybe one day, like, you know, we'll hold these officials and the architects of genocide accountable. There's one um, um, organization that I deeply respect is called Shahid Bis, we bear witness um, in translation. So they document uh, victims of these camps uh, and basically they are brief information on what accounts um or charges that they are held in these camps and just very brief story uh, and to document this obviously they need resource and public support so i, I hope you know um people could use uh, people could um, you know support them um, mm-hmm. either by donating or just even like supporting them telling them how what a great work yeah. Um, and I often say this because, um, yes, these uh, Muslim governments, um, I don't think they represent the view of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these governments are run by these individuals, uh, dictators, if you will.
3: Um,
1: but the Chinese governments were, um, the Chinese government able to buy the conscience of these world leaders but they can never buy the conscience of the people so i hope like you know we can do like grassroots organizations at the basic level if there are university students at the university of beirut for instance like organize like a you know, events and invite us to come and at the law schools for instance and perhaps mm-hmm. like even um organized like student-led coalition like you know um, perhaps Muslim students in support of like Uyghurs like and uh, those kind of things because it, it I think public opinion does matter and hopefully public opinion indirectly would help uh, to change the, the behavior of the Chinese government and I want to add like last um, we didn't have the, the time to touch on this The use of forced labor, Uyghur forced labor is a huge issue right now and it should discuss us and uh, corporations either routinely or unmittingly passing off Uyghur genocide. But we as consumers have to hold our corporations accountable by writing letters to these more than 83 companies that are entangled in this um, Uyghur slavery and ask them how they are sourcing their products, where their products are manufactured and how do they feel about this and by public shaming hopefully of our corporations we can indirectly change the behavior this appalling behavior of the Chinese government
0: and I will link uh, even that uh, website the one that you just mentioned I will link it also in the blog post Yona um, is is, is uh, the Raoul Wallenberg Center doing anything on that front that uh, would be of interest to listeners as well
2: yeah, absolutely. And of course, you can check out our website, rwchr.org. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, we we represent cases like Rehan's. Um, that, and as Rehan said, it's so important to share these and get these stories out because these are the stories that really move the public and move politicians to act. Um, and so we represent these cases, but we're also shedding shining a spotlight on the wider repression and, in this case, genocide within Xinjiang and pushing for uh, accountability mechanisms on the international stage in Canada with our parliament, in the U.S. through Congress, um, to push for either Magnitsky sanctions, which are an important uh, human rights uh, sanctions, with, which either sort of freeze assets or impose travel bans on the officials and architects of uh, these camps. Um, so we're we're kind of leading that front in Canada to push for Magnitsky sanctions, both in Canada and globally, um, and also uh, leading the front against sort of the whitewashing of crimes in the Human Rights Council. Um, so the Raoul Wallenberg does all of these, and um, and I would I would say you know pushing like I, I would say as to Rehan's point, it, because. There are so many industries that are inextricably linked to this genocide. It's important that we, you know, push our our congresspeople or parliamentarians, politicians, to strengthen our laws that uh, that um, that uh, force companies to be accountable for their supply chains. Uh, I think that's such an important thing here because. Uh, it's such a huge problem and there was just you know a major report that came out that implicated companies like Nike Adidas uh, H&M mm-hmm. uh, Amazon um so just as consumers and as citizens it's so important to not be complicit at the very least we can we can ensure that we're not complicit and and that starts with our buying habits but we need to strengthen our laws um, around modern slavery and ensuring that companies are transparent and have due diligence requirements to look into, uh, abuses, uh, especially slavery and genocide. And that's why the genocide term is important here too, because it, it will push our politicians to act. Whereas the term human rights violations, abuses, repression, it doesn't do this particular situation justice. And the amount of products coming out of China, so I think that's important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, on that note, I, I really want to thank both of you uh, for participating in this conversation with me. I'm I'm hoping that I will have more on those as well in the in the future. Um, and yeah, I mean, Rehan, uh, I can only imagine what you're going through, and I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and uh, doing this. And you know. Uh, thank you for uh, co-writing that piece as well, and for what the the center does.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. We very much appreciate um, you hosting this, and, and hopefully, like you know, your listeners will be tuned in and um, help with this course, so we can actually make an impact.
0: Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye.